So our first scripture reading is Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. It's on, uh, on that page in your blue Bible there. Um, and what you notice is that Revelation 2 and 3 is the beginning where Jesus has uh, letters written to seven historical churches. These are churches that we know of. We know they were there historically. We know that they were there geographically. So these are literal churches. Now, the intention is this. I, I'll give you an example. When we were raising our children, uh, our oldest daughter might be getting disciplined. Well, usually our younger daughter would stand behind a door off the side and would listen to what mom and dad were saying about uh, uh, what, what we were saying to the oldest child and how we were disciplining her. And she was like taking, our youngest daughter was like taking mental notes to go, oh, I shouldn't do that because that makes mom and dad unhappy. Well, we're to do the same thing. We're intended to listen in as Jesus talks to these churches. And so here he is talking to the church at Ephesus. And so I begin. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that picture, set of pictures of stars and lampstands is used earlier, and it is about the spirit and the life of a congregation. It's held in his hand, and he walks in the midst. So never forget that a church lives or dies at Jesus' pleasure. He goes on, and he says immediately, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, return. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So keep in mind that threefold um, call of Jesus. Repent, uh, remember, repent, return. It will come up as we're looking at Malachi. And so now, Malachi chapter 2, picking up at verse 10. We're just picking up where we left off as we work through this series in Malachi, uninvited. So just picking up where we left off. So Malachi 2, starting at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And an and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May Yahweh cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to, Yah to Yahweh of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover Yahweh's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because Yahweh was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. 
though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says Yahweh of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What I read to you from Revelation and Malachi, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, who from the beginning has set up, set it up that a man shall not leave his father, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And thus you made the two to become one flesh. And so you strongly remind us that what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Help us. Help us to hear you. Help us to hear your voice this day as you speak through Malachi for our good and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide and you can follow along just two points there. You know, we began by stating up front, God began by stating up front in chapter 1, verse 2, his heart, I have loved you. And that is like the awkward fur that is under the surface of this burden, this massah, this oracle. Like an aquifer. You know, you never see an aquifer. You only see the springs where the water in the aquifer come out. But you never see the aquifer. It's under the surface. And so I have loved you is the aquifer underneath all of this oracle. And so then, out of the fact that God loves them deeply and, has, and thus loves them decisively... He addressed, chapter 1, 6 through 2, 2, 9, he addressed the priest's profanity, their irreligion, their disrespectfulness. How the religious leaders, chapter 2, verse 9, how the religious leaders do not keep my ways to show partiality in their instruction. And now starting here in chapter 2, 10, and going through the rest of the oracle, he moves from the religious leaders to the religiously led. The religious leaders, by way of their profanity, their irreligion, their disrespect, have set the direction for the religiously led. And so God continues to expose their hearts by probing and prodding them with his questions. He asks them questions, and then he brings out their questions. And all the time, he is showing how they are throwing out their hand toward God and singing with Alanis Morissette from that song that she sang about a lover that got too close to her. They're singing something like the same thing. But you, you're not allowed. You're uninvited. And so here in this passage, God's order is contrasted with the people's indifference. And I'm going to begin with the people's indifference. People's indifference. As you give ear to this short passage, you should pick up the fact that there, is, there are concepts and conduct, and the two go together. The concepts are heard in two sets of copied catchphrases. First off, the people's indifference is seen in their priest-like profanity, irreligion, and disrespect. They have, verse 10, been profaning the covenant of their fathers. Just like in chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, the priests, priests, the Levites, were profaning the covenant God made with Levi. 
as God says there. They also go on, and they're profaning the sanctuary, which he loves, verse 11, the very thing God was laying out back in chapter 1, 6 through 14 about the priests, how they were profaning God's sanctuary. Oh, the people's indifference is seen as priest-like profanity. The religious letters, the religious leaders have set the course for the religiously led. The second set of catchphrases is in the word faithless. It's used five times in these verses. Faithless. They're faithless to one another, verse 10, in all of their social and communal interactions. They're faithless as a community, verse 11. So there's now abomination in Israel. They're faithless, therefore, verses 10 through 12 together. They're faithless in their worship. And they're faithless, verse 14, 15, and 16. They're faithless in their first order family relations. Faithless, used five times. That Hebrew word is bagad. It's an intense word. It carries with it the idea of treachery and deceitfulness. And so their profanity toward God and infidelity toward one another, especially in their marriage, is set up as the, the concept. They are indifferent. They're indifferent to God's design and they're indifferent to God's delight. They're indifferent to God's de design of liturgical integrity and marital fidelity. They are indifferent to God's design of liturgical uh, integrity and marital fidelity. And they're indifferent to God's delight of committed relationship upward with him and outward. There's the concept. And so then comes the, the outflow of the conduct. It's the conduct of profanity and infidelity. And it explicitly surfaces in two basic ways at this point, verses 10 through 12, through intermarriage. Now, this is not about racial intermarriage, that that's a crime in some way. The Bible, Bible really never speaks against racial intermarriage. It has to do with religious intermarriage. And so it's religious intermarriage intermarriage, verses 10 through 12, and divorce, verses 13 through 16. And these circle back round to their relationship with Yahweh. Here's what I mean. Intermarriage with non-covenant women, verses 10 through 12, seems to be going on at the expense of covenant marriages, verses 13 through 16. The men are opening up Pandora's box by divorcing their aging wives for those younger, sprightlier, adventurous, outside of the covenant women down the street. You remember Pandora's box, right? This, how the story goes, Pandora is enticed by this box and she's told if you open that box out will come all these things, evils and some pleasures and evils and so forth. And she's enticed by the box and so she opens the lid and poof, it all comes out. They, they've opened the Pandora's box by divorcing their aging covenant, covenant wives for those younger, sprightlier, adventurous outside of the covenant women down the street. But by opening this Pandora's box, they are unleashing all kinds of social ills and shared evils. Now, we haven't read these verses. We'll deal with this next week more, but I want you to 
just look down at chapter 2, 17, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 3, verse 5, and you need to see that this is the result of opening the Pandora's box by their marital infidelities. You have wearied Yahweh with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now notice what they've done. Because they're marrying outside the covenant and they think it's okay, then they're exalting evil and calling it good. And because they're divorcing their wives, they're flippantly saying, oh, where's the God of justice? He's not involved. And you begin to see how that Pandora's box is being popped open and out are coming these social evils and societal ills. And so then, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages and oppress the widow and the fatherless who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. Years and years ago, I had a fellow that I knew. He'd begun coming to our church. He wasn't a member. And he, his wife was pregnant at this point, and finally it comes out that she's pregnant from another relationship. In fact, she had gotten involved with swingers. I don't want to get into the dirty details, but, but basically multiple relational partners. Well, he's furious about it. He's recently become a Christian. He's furious about it that she has been so unfaithful to him and unrighteous. And, and I'm upset too and then finally we sit down together and I have my one ruling elder with me and we're sitting down listening and she brings up well when I was pregnant years ago with our first son he left me and went off and had a relationship with another woman that he sired children a child with and I'm like you did what well yeah he did it now look I understand ladies you're beautiful and when you're pregnant, you're beautiful. But I know, I know from experience that usually a pregnant woman starts to get to a place where she feels unbeautiful and unlovable and uncomfortable and she's extremely vulnerable. And it was at the height of her vulnerability, he went off chasing skirts somewhere else. I was furious with him. And when I'm mad, I'm not a very good Christian I was furious with him. I said, who are you to self-righteously condemn her and try to get rid of her? You're the head of the household. You set the path. You ran off chasing somebody else while she was in need, vulnerable with your child. And now you have the audacity and all your self-righteousness to come back and condemn her? Well, needless to say, he didn't hear a thing I said and went off and divorced her. But he opened Pandora's box. I even told him that. You're the one who opened the Pandora's box. This is because you set the pattern. What's the same thing here? By their marital infidelity and, and uh, marrying non-covenant women, they're opening Pandora's box out of which are coming these social ills and shared evils. Unleashing them. And they're unleashing them in the sanctuary. 
This is how God puts it in verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now on the one hand, that verse, and with it the next one, is describing how they are desecrating God's house by bringing in foreign religious elements. Bell worship, Asherah, and so forth. This has happened before. It's exactly what got Judah sent into exile. And very often in the prophets and in the, and in the Old Testament, uh, religious infidelity is often pictured as marital adultery. But on the other hand, very concretely, they are actually marrying foreign pagan women at the expense of their covenant wives. And they're doing this, as they're doing this, they are therefore twisting and tainting and staining and spoiling God's worship. My friends, you need to understand the connection between our social engagements and the sanctuary. That life and liturgy go together like a hand inside of a glove, like a key inside of a lock. That's why over there in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 7, 1 that we read before the confession of sin, Paul puts it that way. He's talking about our relationships, and he puts it in worship temple language. Well, here's the people's indifference. And contrasted against that is God's order. Now, God's order, standing in stark contrast and divergence from the social chaos that's burbling up and babbling out of Judah, God's order will flow throughout the, much of the remainder of Malachi. But here, I want you to notice that God's order is very easily reflected in our Lord Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Return. Remember, repent, return. So remember who God is and what he has done. Do we all, all not have one father? Do we all not have one creator? Remember who God is and what he has done. Verse 10. Remember that God has set us apart and that our worship should be set apart and unadulterated, not defiling the sanctuary. Verse 11 and 12. Remember that God has set us apart and he wants us to have set apart marriages, to marry only covenant members, fellow believers, Christians. Verse 11. Remember that the way you treat your marital relationship has an effect on your relationship with God. Just as Peter, that's verse 13 and 14 which is exactly what Peter reminds us of when he says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Remember, that one of the reasons for godly marriages, Christian with Christian, is for godly offspring. Verse 15. Remember that God hates divorce, and this kind of divorce that he's describing here is clothed with violence. Verse 16. Now you may ask, how is it clothed with violence? Well, in that day, as in much of human history, and even in much of the world, 
women are not allowed to divorce their husbands, but the men can do the divorcing. And in this situation, when they would have divorced their wives, that means they would have kicked them out, no cover over their head, no house, no alimony, no child support, no safety, no protection, and no love. Now that may not be smashing people in the face, but that is violence. And so remember, he goes on to say, from whence you have fallen. What do you do? Repent and return. Repent and return to the God who has loved you. I have loved you, chapter 1, verse 2. Repent and return to the God who has fathered you, verse, chapter 2, verse 10. Repent and return to the God who has created you, chapter 2, verse 10. Repent and return to intentionally faithful worship of God, verses 12 through 13. Repent and return to committed Christian with Christian marriages, verse 12. Repent and return to marital faithfulness with the companion of your youth, verses 13 through 14. Repent and return to the goal of godly offspring, verse 15. Repent and return to your vow. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife. In sickness, and in health, in plenty, and in want, in joy, and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. Repent and return by guarding yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless. And he says that twice in verse 15 and verse 16, telling you how important this is. Repent and return. Well, my friends, as we move toward the end, the obvious is the obvious, seems to me. Number one, Christians should only marry Christians. If you have any control over whom you marry, now if you're in, in places in Asia, um, Malaysia and so forth, or if you're in the Middle East, you may not always have control over who, whom you marry, right? The family usually does. But if you have control over whom you marry, Christians marry Christians. Secondly, divorce ought not to be our normal terminology or tradition. Divorce ought not to be our normal terminology or tradition. You know, Ann and I were 17. Someday I should tell you the story about my proposing to her. It's a thing you should never do the way I did it, <laughs> but I did it. And so we're going to get married, and here we are. We're 17, and we're bebopping down the road. I think we're in my truck. And we're bebopping down the road, and we're talking about being married. And one of the things that we swore we would never do is ever use the D word. We would never use the D word, divorce. Now look, we are just two sinners saved by grace. And so we're 43 years into this thing because of the grace of God. And in that, part of that was refusing to ever use the D word. Divorce ought not to be in our normal terminology or tradition. But what more is God saying to his people here? Well, one thing is that there is a deep relationship between our liturgy, our worship, and our lives, our way of living. Our social engagements and the sanctuary do go together. The point is, 
the why and the way of worship feeds into the manner of our living, but it also flows back from our living, from our manner of living, flows back into the why and way of worship. It's all about central commitments and rudimentary responsibilities. Our loyalty to the Lord who loves us affects our social and family loyalties. And our family and social responsibilities affect our responsibilities to our rescuing Lord. To put it negatively, if you are indifferent to the one, it is not long before we reveal that we have become indifferent to the other. If that doesn't catch your attention, maybe this will help. I have talked to many of our RUF ministers, Reformed University Fellowship ministers, who are campus ministers. And they, a lot of them tell me those stories about the guy. Usually it's a guy, but sometimes it'll be a gal. Who are just hot for Jesus and really committed to the church and the ministry. And they're going, going, going. All of a sudden they disappear. It takes about six weeks maybe for the minister to finally round them up and find them. And they'll sit down over coffee or lunch and they'll say, you know, I've really been missing you. And what's going on? Oh, pastor, I just don't know about this Jesus stuff. I'm really beginning to have a lot of doubts. And most of those campus ministers tell me they next ask the very next question. Oh, really? Who are you sleeping with? And about 60% of the cases, the young fellas and gals will look with the big surprised eyes and say, how'd you know? Our social engagements and, our, and the sanctuary go together. Our liturgy and life go together. They feed into each other. If you're indifferent to the one, it will not be long before you reveal an indifference to the other. Well, I think that's helpful. But now to go from preaching to meddling. On a more pastoral note, I want to talk to the divorced. Now look, this whole subject can cause undue stress and shame. I, I'm just preaching through Malachi. You knew I was coming to this passage, right? I mean, I just have to. I have no control over that if I'm going to preach through a whole passage. And so here I am, and I know that this subject can cause undue stress and shame. And any thought-out statements that we make on the subject must take into account Jesus' words over in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 with all the parallel parallels in the other gospel accounts and 1 Corinthians 7. What that means is, is we must have some sensitivity to the uniqueness of each situation. I just want to say this to everyone else. We need to have some sensitivity to the uniqueness of the situation. You don't know what has happened. You don't know the details. You don't know the facts. Trust me, you don't know. And neither do I. And so don't be quick to jump in there and judge. We need to have some sensitivity to the uniqueness of each situation. But now more pointedly to the divorced, but God knows. God knows your state of affairs better than anyone ever has. Jesus said over in Ephesians, over there with the church at Ephesus, he says twice, I know. I know what has happened in the back rooms. I know what's happened down the corridors. I know what's happened in those closed, behind closed doors. I know you. Jesus knows. God knows your situation. He knows your state of affairs better than anyone else ever has. And so then, many of you who are divorced, have been the wronged party, all things considered. And so if you are the wronged person, the person who is wronged, 
Malachi 2, 10 through 16 should bring you some sense of release. God is actually speaking up here for you. God is actually rising up and speaking up in defense of you who were wronged. He cares about what happened in your marriage and in the divorce. He cares about what happened in the courtroom. He cares about what happened behind closed doors. He cares about what, you, what happened in your experience. And He rises up to defend you. He cares from within a similar experience. You see, God knows what it is to have a troubled marriage. A marriage that is full of, filled with coldness. A marriage that is filled with character assassination. A marriage that is filled with apathy. A marriage that is filled with adultery. I mean, he... His, his relationship with Israel and the church is always pictured in a marriage. I mean, the church may be Jesus' bride, but the church has been sleeping around quite a bit, don't you know? God knows from within your own experience because His is similar. Just spend some time reading Hosea. And so if you were the wronged one, then give thanks that God was speaking up on your behalf. Now maybe you were the one who did the wrongdoing, whatever the situation was. The issue now is what will you do with where you are and what you've done? And coming to an answer is going to be far too involved for a sermon conclusion. But I do have two steps to start you out. The first step is to take ownership of your wrongdoing instead of the blame shifting, instead of blame shifting, which is probably what you've been doing all along. Taking ownership of your wrongdoing instead of the blame shifting that you've probably been doing all along. Well, you know, the reason why I divorced her is because, yeah, I did wrong and all of that, but she, okay, that's blame shifting. Stop that nonsense. Take ownership of the wrongdoing you did instead of blame shifting, which you've probably been doing all along. Secondly, the second step is to recognize your miserable failure as a wife, your miserable failure as a husband, how you made, how you made the situation unbearable through your irrational arrogance through your ungodly desire to be the God of that marriage that rules everything and controls and dominates. How you made the situation unbearable because you felt entitled to do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, however you wanted, and that's the way it should always be. And so there's more that needs to be said, but you starting with those two things will take you a long way toward right-doing rather than the wrong-doing. But maybe someone here or someone watching or listening in, maybe 
unbeknown to anyone just yet, unbeknown to your spouse, unbeknown to even your best friend at the office, you are presently behind the scenes, behind closed doors, you are presently the wronging one. I'll tell you, there's hope, hope right now, hope right this minute. It's there in verse 15 and verse 16, where God says twice, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. That means then, my friends, stop! Stop whatever it is you're doing behind those closed doors. Stop! Cease and desist. Guard yourselves and your spirits and do not be faithless. As Jesus put it, remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first return know that god is saying to you i have loved you and so there is hope and there is forgiveness remember repent and return if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness let us pray